So last week was Genesis 35. Tonight we have Genesis 36 and 37, but I talked with James and I talked with Dan and they talked with Matt apparently. Genesis 36, if you've read it, it's really just a list of names. And I went back and listened to what Matt had to say about seven years ago about this chapter in chapter 36. And um, great little summary. And he actually didn't even really go into 36 too much. He said, um, really the, the great point from this is really it's just Esau's lineage. And Esau leaves the promised land, makes his own kingdom. Um, in the first 30 plus verses, he has eight different kings. And uh, the, the big point is you can get rule really quickly the secular way through manipulation and power, but it won't last. And the proof of that is nobody talks about the Edomites, but people do talk about the Israelites. And so it took Israel about 800 years to get their king. It was a slow process. And then we know the one true king who comes almost a couple thousand years later. And so um, that's really just kind of a, the overarching theme that we can take from 36. We're gonna jump into 37. This is the first introduction to the person who is Joseph. Most of us are super familiar with Joseph. Um, strangely, even some of these stories being really kind of uh, PG-13 or even kind of rated R, they are stories that we've grown up with. Taught them in a kind of a kid way to show kids God's redeeming power. And through this section, we get introduced to Joseph. We shift gears. The, the next 25% of Genesis the last 25% of Genesis, I should say, is honing in and really focusing on the life and story of Joseph. And what we have is a testimony, is a testimony of Joseph's life. The difference between a testimony and a biography, a testimony is something that ultimately will point to the work that God is doing. And a biography is a life story talking about how man overcomes his struggles and whatever the, the large obstacle in their life is how this person overcame it. That's the biography. More religion, this is more Jesus, a testimony of what Jesus has done. So, and there's two very simple key principles um, I want you guys to just look for as we go through. The number, the, the first one is you reap what you sow. It is a tried and true, basic, biblical, worldly, physiological law, you reap what you sow. And sadly, we are gonna see some really heartbreaking sowing and reaping that happens in this chapter. Some things really kind of come to a head that we've read about over the last couple of months. And then the other uh, key principle that this reinforces uh, towards the end of it is really just being able to trust God in difficult times when we don't know what he's up to, when we haven't heard so many people uh, we'll meet with, they're just like, I just feel like God is so silent right now, or I don't know what God is doing. And if you fast forwarded 10 or 20 or 30 years, or maybe even in heaven, you would talk with them and they would say, I can see it. I know now why God had me go through that season. And as I say that right now, it rings true for so many of you that you could say that as you look back on this past season or decades ago, I can see what God was trying to accomplish in my life. So those are two things I want you to look for. 
the first section, we're barely gonna get through the first couple verses without having to stop and talk a lot about this, the backstory of this. And then hopefully the second part will cruise through a little bit, a uh, little bit smoother. But Genesis 37, chapter 37, verse one. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, plural. If you'll remember Bilhah and Zilpah from before, the maidservants of Leah and Rachel. So four moms that Jacob has in his life, four wives, four moms. Again, we come back to this idea of polygamy. Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph, Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peace of, uh, peacefully to him. Again, Bilhah, Zilpah, maidservants of Leah and Rachel, multiple children with four different women. We see the sowing and reaping of polygamy. The first, I don't know why I keep getting these polygamy stories. The first, in Genesis 4, I had to fill in for somebody. And Lamech is the first person in the Bible who is a polygamist. And he's also a murderer. And like, and then I had to teach on Leah and Rachel a few couple months ago. I don't know what it was. And it was the polygamy thing. So God wants me to tell you guys that polygamy is bad. Okay, I guess that's what it is. Um, we know this. Um, it leads to total dysfunction. And Jacob pays the price for it dearly in this chapter. He experiences a lot of pain, maybe the most pain he's experienced to date. Again, uh, quick note on polygamy. I don't know if I've said this before now, this being like the 10th time I've talked about it, but it is one of those sneaky perverted things that a lot of uh, uh, pastors and Christian leaders are warning. You're gonna start to see laws really kind of become um, kind of cater to this idea, I guess you could say. And we know all these laws end up crushing women and children. All these laws, we see it with, uh, biological males competing in women's sports. Who gets crushed? The women do. Um, the gender stuff, all bathrooms, men going in bathrooms, men going in women's locker room. Every single perversion that we see coming to fruition in culture ends up crushing women, women and children. It crushes them. Most biological men can sire a child, but fathers are real men who are married to one wife and are faithful to her and take care of those kids. Now, if you're in a, a person who was not previously that person, God's mercies are new every day. The redemptive work of Jesus Christ is free to everybody. And that can begin at this moment if that has not happened. Now, anything else outside of Genesis 2, marriage between one man and one, one woman is bad. Now, if polygamy ends up becoming legal or whatever it is, it's gonna be bad. But there are other subtle little things. Obviously a second wife, a third wife, a fourth wife is bad for everybody. But porn, that's not to be brought into the marriage. It's a distraction, a hindrance. 
it destroys the home. The phones are a huge problem. Work can be a huge problem. I'm not putting these things on the same level as polygamy, but I am saying we have to guard and protect our marriages from these things. Technology, hobbies. Some men are so obsessed with their hobbies. It might as well be their second wife because that's all they do. It's quadding, it's guns, it's hunting, it's fishing. It's, it's all this stuff and there's never time for the wife and kids. And women, it can be the same thing. They can idolize and bring in and elevate to, the, to an unhealthy position. The kids, their moms, their parents, their family, their girlfriends, their looks, the home, all of those things when brought in can pull apart the marriage. So all of those things have to be kept in a healthy way. Side note, um, since I work with families a lot and marriages and stuff, really kind of trying to study like the effects of technology. And this research is done by some AI experts, tech experts, uh, sociologists, psychologists. There are four other things that are really having a huge impact, not only just on families, but individuals as well. They call them the four digital villains. Distraction, things that we're talking about here, which leads to a loss of focus. So you have digital distraction, digital deluge, which is an overwhelm of information that leads to anxiety. Um, digital dementia, where your memory starts to go. And, and Matt has talked about this, like we used to be able to remember phone numbers, 541-955-8106. I don't know whose number that is, but I remember it. I had to. There's all these things that we remember. There's things now, simple things that I know I could remember, but I also know I have it on YouTube saved on my phone and I can just pull it up and remember how to do it really quick. And so that is digital dementia. And the last one, really kind of a culmination of all of these, they call it digital deduction. And they have found that this generation has tested worse on logic. This next generation has tested worse on logic and IQ than previous generations. It is the first time in history that a generation has gone backwards in logical understanding and IQ. First time in history. So... So if you're older and you keep telling your kids you know better, I mean, chances are your odds are pretty good. That's just a side note. Let's take a quick look at how Jacob got here. Terrible parenting by his dad, Isaac. Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Isaac has two sons. We know Jacob and Esau, both very, very different like drastically different sons that Isaac has. He has Esau, eats meat at every meal, drinks black coffee, drives a lifted truck with a gun rack in the back, gets every UFC pay-per-view fight, works out at duo, not anymore, um, does cold plunges, comes to every single game changers with the Edgewater men, hangs out. Jacob, mama's boy, moved to Portland, wears a beanie in the summer, drives a Toyota Yaris, takes Epsom salt baths and has a cat with its own Instagram account. Those are his two sons, okay? Who do you think Isaac wants to hang out with being a man's man? The Yaris driving cat lover or the UFC watching truck driving meat eating Esau? Of course he's drawn to Esau. Of course he is. Jacob is rejected by his father. He's raised by his mother. This is extremely important for us as dads to think about. And we laugh and, and I can joke about it. 
But it does not matter if your kids have the same interests and are like you or not. You are to love and care for them every bit as much as the ones that you feel closer and attached to. And the same thing goes for moms. Absolutely, same thing goes for moms. Paul said, I became all things to all men that I might save some. So how much more for our kids should we do whatever we can to get in on their level? Met with, um, I've met with some people and they're like, well, you know, blended families, we have some amazing blended families here at Edgewater that have been a true testament of God's redeeming work in, in a family and how two loving couples can come together, put Jesus first and see God redeem those relationships. But I, I recently sat with a couple and the dad said, and the mom said, well, he just kind of has a hard time connecting with the stepchild or whatever. And my heart's breaking because I don't care you married her. Now this is your role. This is your job. You do whatever you can to make that connection. Um, I think I've shared plenty of times that my, my boys are at U of O and I had no idea how hard it would be when they left. Like we're super close. Do, I mean, we still text mainly sports things every day with each other, but we're super close. It was so hard when my first son left like super, super hard. And then when my second boy left, I was just like, oh my goodness, it was really tough. It was tough on our whole family. They're only two hours away, but we're pretty close. It was so hard on my daughter that she actually slept in their room on their bed for like the first two weeks that they were gone. But you know what was really cool about it? Even though my daughter, have always, daughter and I have always had a really close relationship, we've become so much closer. Like, mom's working, doing something. She gets home from school. We have a chance to go do something, go for a drive or coffee or whatever it is. The opportunity for the two of us to, to bond has been awesome. She doesn't watch sports with me. She said she would. I said, eh, nah, let me change. Let me be the one to change. And so I have grown a lot. It's been really, really good for me. So um, parents, we have to do all we can. Saddest thing for Jacob in, his, in this brokenness of his is the idolatry that he struggles with. Um, Rachel is just put on this pedestal. I mean, he works like 14 years and goes through all this trouble with his uncle Laban just to get Rachel. And then Rachel dies. And so now this, he projects this idolatry now from Rachel onto Joseph. Joseph becomes the object of his affection. Like he's just, he's obsessed with Joseph and puts him on, on this pedestal that is not healthy. Um, it, it ruins us. Uh, and it's easy to do with kids. It's super easy to do. I mean, uh, like when they're really little, they're tough and it's like, uh, you know, and then they kind of start to take care of themselves a little bit and they can kind of feed themselves and buckle themselves and you can play games with them and you can coach them and, it's easy quickly for them to just become this, this, in this position of idolatry. And so it's, it's sad to see it happen in his life because there's a whole big mess that's gonna come from it. Um, another sad result of Isaac's rejection of Jacob is that Jacob really just becomes this weak, passive dad. And man, this is the kryptonite for all of us to just be disengaged, to be distracted, to hop on our phone, to check out, to have our hobbies, to be quiet, to really pull back and be passive. It starts with Adam and Eve. We see it right away 
in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Eve is off doing her own thing. Next thing you know, we have sin enters the world because Adam is passive. He's not leading his wife, not being the spiritual leader. He's not engaged. He blows it. Um, so Jacob struggles with this. So much so, we see he has one daughter. Um, his daughter, Dinah, he has 12 sons, one daughter. She's raped in Shechem and he does nothing. So on the, on the spectrum, you have passive disengaged and then you have hyper over-engaged, over-aggressive. Both ends of the spectrum are not good, not healthy. But what the result is for this is that his sons take the matter into their own hands and dad didn't respond, so they will get revenge. And so we see a massacre, a violent massacre in revenge for their sister. Dads need to be present. They need to be engaged. Now, I don't wanna bash on men. I wanna see men succeeding. I wanna see husbands succeeding. I wanna see grandpas succeeding, finishing well, leading well. I wanna see their families thriving. There's two scriptures that, that really have driven my ministry. They keep me going. Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no hope, the people perish. When I was teaching, it was my mission, like just driving to school. Like I want kids to be hopeful. I want them to have hope, a real eternal hope. And I want dads to have the same thing. I want men to know no matter where I've been or what I've done, if I've been passage, passive, distracted, disengaged, there's still hope for me. Beginning tonight, I can change. These patterns can be changed. And then Genesis 50, 20, we're gonna talk a little bit that, about that um, coming up. So there's, there's three things that I'm really passionate about. I have to share with you guys really quick that kind of drive my ministry because I wanna see men doing well. I wanna see homes doing well, kids, wives, everybody flourishing. So the first thing is um, the leadership at Edgewater has been really gracious and encouraging and let me start a ministry called Game Changers. The goal of that is to encourage and equip men and to see them thriving. The response has been awesome. We have these discipleship groups that have broken out. We have um, men taking other men through the Bible. They're like, hey, let's go deeper. Let's study God's word. Let's hold each other accountable. We have a group of leaders that have been doing this for a few months and some of them are starting to take on other guys. If that's something that you're interested in, if you wanna be a leader, if you're like, man, I just wanna study the Bible with some guys, let me know. Because we have all kinds of groups that are forming where men can build each other up and the encouragement of God's word. The second thing is there's all kinds of different things that we're doing with marriages. This Friday night, Dick Worthington is gonna be sharing. We have a ministry called Thrive, uh, started by Lowell Anderson and Chris Isabel. It's been awesome. We're gonna have almost 60 couples Friday night. This week is full, but be looking for the next one. Just picking out a different topic and encouraging marriages wherever they're at so that they would be thriving. And then this last one is... Um, this last thing, my wife and I, and seeing all the heartbreak from families and she's a school counselor and there's, uh, you know, Matt and Charity do a lot of stuff with foster kids and uh, Chad's wife, Cece, is also a school counselor and Katie Scudstad is always meeting with moms. We got Titus too. For the last few years, my wife and I have just really felt this heavy burden for families and parents and individuals to get tools and support biblically rooted, biblically based um, support for families and individuals. Um, some of it is very simple. Some of it will require much more intensive therapy. 
Uh, some of it will be mental health related. She's getting a lot of training and things right now. Um, but we have recently just started a nonprofit. We're going to be talking more about it as it comes out. It's been in the works for a few years, but it's really just going to be to help families in this community. We want to see this community doing well and thriving. I want my great-great-grandkids to grow up in a community where there was healthy families thriving and doing well because men were on mission following God. Their wives were flourishing and thriving because of it. Their kids were confident and thriving. That's what I want for this community. And I'm blessed to be a part of it. Amen. Thank you. If you want to be a part of any of that and help with any of it, I need your help. Please reach out and let me know. We're just trusting God with all of these ministries. Let me know. I would love to, to partner with any of you. Let's continue. Second part of the second verse in 37. So verse two, chapter 37, Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. A few clues and kind of like key words that I highlighted as I was just kind of reading through this that really give us a good indicator of where we are. The first one is bad report. It says it gives a bad report. Most translations would just flat out say that's a lie. In simple terms, it's a lie. Joseph lies. Um, it's, a, it's a first indication that he's kind of this not super trustworthy, arrogant, kind of selfish. At the, if we're really kind to him, we would say maybe he's just a tattletale. But more honestly, it's probably that he's lying to his dad about his stepbrothers. And then the, the next word that kind of stands out to me or phrase is this robe of many colors. And it's a good indicator of what we're dealing with in this situation. Not only is Joseph the favorite of Jacob, but Jacob's telling the whole world about it. This isn't like, oh, I, got, I gotta be careful, I gotta check myself. He's, he's out with it. This robe of many colors, it's like he bought Joseph a brand new 2024 Ford F-150, six wheel Velociraptor, and the 150 to $500,000 price range, depending on what extras you order with it. That's basically what he did. And then the other kids, he said, I'm sorry, you're gonna have to take the bus. He's making it very clear. He's not quiet about this. And Jacob is the type of person that likes to pull up to the job site in his new truck for his brothers to see. The other phrase that kind of stands out to me is, father, uh, father loved him more. It's favoritism. He shows it. We just saw that. The favoritism that he shows him really sows these seeds of contempt for the siblings. Sadly, the siblings have contempt for each other instead of for their dad. And that's usually how this plays out in family dynamics. The bitterness, the bitter feelings are not always towards the parent, but most often amongst the siblings. Um. With our kids, they, our kids are far from perfect and it's not my position to use this to expose their weaknesses. Let me just say, they're normal kids. And I had all the same challenges that you guys did. And when they got things right, it was by God's grace. But there were things that we worked really, really hard at that we're kind of getting to see some fruit from. No matter what was going on conflict-wise with them, we would, we would remind them, you're best friends. 
You guys are best friends. And sometimes when they were fighting and arguing, we would make them sit on the couch and hold hands. That was tough. Or arm around each other. They apologized real quick. They got things figured out real quick when we would do that. But we kept building this into them. Listen, you guys are each other's first best friends. You have to work this out. And now we're blessed. Like I said, my daughter is close with them. My two boys are roommates up there. They share a lot of the same friends. It's been a blessing. We, I, in fact, actually, just before I, I came up here, we got a text from the oldest and he's asking my wife, um, he's like, hey, Valentine's Day is coming up. We're coming down for the Super Bowl. And uh, we wanna take Avery to dinner, just the three of us, just the two brothers taking her out to Valentine's Day dinner. And so my wife is trying to help them plan that and everything. And we're like, oh my gosh, all those years of <laughs> this right here. Parents, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, okay? Because the first and the third, they go at it a lot. You know, the, the middle child is usually like, guys, just work it out. But the first and third, and now we're like, oh my gosh, they're finally like, and some of you have lived that. You know what I'm talking about. So keep working on those relationships. Super, super important. <clears throat> now, here's the thing. Here's the proof that, that this is a bad idea on Jacob's part. This really doesn't affect him as much in this moment as it does the kids. It will eventually affect him. But it says that they hated him in verse four. Um, they hated their brother because of what their dad had done. When in Matthew 5, Jesus says, the seeds of hate lead to murder. And so we have some foreshadowing here of what potentially almost happens. And then the rest of verse four, it says they could not speak peacefully to him. I think when I meet with families, the thing that I hear most often, whether they state it explicitly or not, is that they just want peace. Most parents just want peace in their home. That's all they want. They don't want fighting. They want the kids to get along. They want to have healthy relationships with each other. Jacob does not have that because of his own doing. Uh, let's continue in verse five. Now, Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. They already hated him. Now they hate him more. Verse six, he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bound down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So the, the hate starts initially because of what the dad has done, the favoritism. But now it says they hate him even more because he's arrogant. He's not considerate. He lacks empathy. He comes and shares these difficult words with them. And it's obviously a difficult concept for them to get. In, in this culture and society, there's no way the youngest would be in that position. And so naturally, that's obviously a hard thing for them to receive. But we also don't like to break our paradigms of how things are supposed to work, do we? I was kind of thinking about this. 
Like Joseph is in the wrong for sure. Absolutely. But we also say, God, you're kind of supposed to work like this. And if you don't, eh, I don't know if that's from God. That's a religious system that we have created in our minds based on our past experience. This will become partially the fault of theirs that they have to own some of this hate because of the way that they interact obviously with, with Joseph. It says in verse nine, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous, new bad word here, jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. He comes back, Joseph comes back after the last time with another dream. This guy, this guy doesn't get it. So Joseph, we know Joseph's delivery is wrong and it's off because Jacob loves Joseph. Like he idolizes him. And now he says, he rebukes him. So he's made his dad mad now. So we know based on that response, whatever Joseph was doing in this, how he was communicating it, what he was doing, the arrogance he was demonstrating was wrong because his dad who loves him way too much actually says, hold up a second, this isn't right. So his dad rebukes him. Um, Joseph, again, total disregard for the people around him. It's not loving, it's not humble, it's not empathetic. Um, it's actually an uh, indicator of a sociopath or a psychopath when you, when you exhibit these types of behaviors. And so that's what we see a little bit in Joseph. And I think it was Matt shared, somebody shared, I'm pretty sure it was Matt shared the study from Baylor University where it says um, one of the things they found out, like you're ranking on the psychopath scale is if people in a room, if you have somebody in a room who yawns, if you yawn with them, then you have empathy. If you don't, you just sit there stone cold, you're a psychopath. So I'm gonna give you that. You got those coworkers where you've kind of been wondering, tomorrow's your chance to test it out, okay? Set up your camera, videotape it, take it to your boss. <clears throat> so again, Joseph made his mistakes, but also people don't like to hear what God is doing if it goes against our preconceived notions of how God should work. And I think the antidote to this, the way to handle when somebody tells you, hey, I think God's putting this on my heart or, you know, because what he shares ends up happening. So the way he delivered the message was completely wrong, but what he shares is accurate and they don't like to hear it. I think the way to receive or to root for other people when God is doing something is to be the type of person that is just naturally grateful. Just have a heart of gratitude and have a real gospel identity. No, be so secure in who you are that you're rooted in the gospel and somebody can bring something to you like that and you can go, okay, well, that's, man, I'm having a hard time seeing how that could work out. That's kind of different, but Okay, let me think about that. Man, I need to process that. Jacob never 
built this into his other kids. He didn't invest the time in the other sons to where they had such a, a gospel identity that they were confident enough to sit there and listen to somebody talk about that without them being offended in that way. Now, again, Joseph, equally to blame. I get that. But you can help in the situation by having a heart of gratitude and really having a strong grasp of gospel identity. When I was younger, I mean, I can't think of any instances, but I'm sure when I was younger, I would maybe look at what other dads or men were up to and be like, oh man, that looks awesome. Or I wish I could do that. Or, oh man, maybe we're supposed to go on vacation there. or We're supposed to have the, that type of house or car, or whatever. I don't know when the transition happened, but somewhere along the line, you just get to the point where like, I am so grateful for the life that I've been given, for the ministry that I've been given, the wife I've been given, the kids, the friends, the family, the, the job, the community, you all. Like I would not trade my time in, in history or my position or people or anything for what I've got to experience. I don't look at anything that anybody is doing and say, ah, oh. I'm like, I, it's, it's like, man, that's amazing. Man, look at God working through them. It's such a fun thing to be in that spot to have. And if you don't have that, it's easy. Just understand who you are. The Imago Dei, you've been created in God's image with a plan and a purpose for your life that God needs you to execute, not somebody else, but you. And be grateful for that. And you can have that kind of peace where you can root for those people around you. Now, <clears throat> Three problems um, with hearing what God's doing in other people's lives. Some people just don't like to hear God's choosing. I'm sure when Matt started Edgewater 18 years ago, I'm sure there, was, there were people obviously that were excited for him and they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But I'm sure there were some people that were like, oh, that should be me. Or I should be leading a church or it's my time. Or you didn't, you didn't come through the ranks or the system like you're supposed to. You're upsetting my paradigm of the way that God's supposed to work. And, and praise God, he was able to keep focused and do what God has called him to do. Every single one of us needs to do that. Keep that focus. Some people don't like to know, um, they don't like to know what God's doing because, um, well, they just don't like God's will. They might hear it, you know, probably following the same idea. Like when Edgewater started, there were probably people that were like, man, I don't, like that. Yeah, I know there were people like that. I heard people say those things. When God calls, man, you can't worry about those things. So, um, we want to picture God working how we're comfortable. And my, my Wednesday morning, early men's group, we were talking about this situation and Billy Graham Palouse came and spoke a while back. I was gone that weekend, but apparently something happened in one of the services and he just stopped and prayed for the person. And we were talking about how like, for our brains, like the Sunday services in America are supposed to function a certain way. For him, he's just like, oh, this person needs prayer. Like we're gonna stop and we're gonna pray. And then it worked out. And we were talking about like, man, that doesn't fit in our file for how God is supposed to work. But we're so thankful that God continues to work in spite of that picture that we have or that paradigm that we see him working through. Now, 
dreams. God can come to people through dreams and visions, but it will never be inconsistent with his word and it wouldn't add to his word. It wouldn't change his word. It wouldn't be inconsistent. It wouldn't add something. His word is complete. And so um, I thought, how could somebody do this well? Slowly respond, patiently and humbly. If you experience something like Joseph did, I would advise you to respond slowly, patiently and humbly and make sure that it's the right message in the right time and it doesn't go against God's word. And I'm kind of, uh, I gotta share a little story with you guys. I'm gonna kind of break out of my own paradigm. God came, well, God shared a vision with me. It was years ago. And I don't like to talk about it because by golly, I'm like a logical person and I have a master's degree and I know all like how everything's supposed to work, right? And it's kind of embarrassing to say, well, I actually had a vision from God. I actually had a dream, but I know it was from God because it gave me just tremendous peace. And it was, I've seen it come to fruition. Before I came on staff at Edgewater, I had to finish the school year. I was offered a position here, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago now. And I had to finish the school year. And we, so we were, I couldn't leave immediately anyway, but we were praying about what that would look like. And I'd been serving and volunteering here a lot. And it sounded great, but I also had a calling to minister to the team and the kids in my classroom that were out there in the public schools, out on the front lines. I love seeing those kids in my classroom, also at church and them going, hey, you're at Edgewater, yeah. I love that connection. And so I took some time and was really praying about it. I was like, man, Lord, I don't wanna be pulled out of that and miss out on that opportunity. And I was kind of getting to that point where it was decision time and <laughs> this sounds weird. You guys are gonna have to, you're gonna have to give me some grace, but I had this dream and it was like the Bonneville salt flats and it was like sunny and everything. And it was almost ethereal. Like, I, I don't even think I was like walking. I was just kind of there and I could see the Bonneville salt flats and it was warm breeze. It was beautiful out. I had this great sense of peace where I was at. And above me, not like this, not, not a metal fence like this, like a cyclone fence like this, but like this, like the top of a cage for an animal was above me. And there was this gate that was open. You guys can't judge me, all right? I'm sounding really crazy right now, I know. There was this gate this, that was open, this door. And God told me, it's like, you're fine here. Like you can do whatever you want here. But if you choose to do this and follow me, you can come up here as well. And I just had this incredible sense of peace. I was just like, I woke up and I was like, honey, I have to tell you something. This is strange, but God gave me this vision and I could still do whatever I wanted. To this day, I still have, I can sub when I want. I haven't done it in a while, but I can still go into the schools and sub. I've helped with coaching. I've helped with meetings of school board things and stuff like that. I've still had access to that. But God opened up this door to where I've had so much freedom to do so many amazing things in ministry. It's been such a blessing. So you guys said you wouldn't judge me. That's the vision that God gave me. Let's continue. We got to do some work now. Verse 12, we're going to hurry through this. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. 
So he had said to them, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Verse 18, they saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us, by the way, don't call me that, please. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Funny, they're just like, hey, we just did this terrible thing. Let's have some dinner. Like this, talk about sociopaths. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then, Midian, then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt, which we now are going to see in the next, whatever it is, 12, 13 chapters, the work that God does in saving his family and redeeming these relationships. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. All of his sons comforted him, even the ones that conspired and lied. And he said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus, thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is deranged, totally dysfunctional. Um, we see all of this fruit come as a result of some terrible choices by Jacob and how he led his family. But what's amazing about this set of scripture, it is the beginning, the Genesis, we could say, of what will eventually become the culmination of Genesis 50, 20, what the enemy intended for evil, God used for good to the saving of many souls. The question is, why would God do it this way? Why wouldn't God just intervene and take care of it all? Why do we have to go through what'll be a couple of decades for him to finally redeem these relationships and be changed? 
It's a testimony. It's not a biography. It's a testimony to God's redeeming work. An angel can't just show up and tell us our faults. Most of the time, our faults get exposed through life. And there was a lot of work that Joseph needed to do if he was gonna mature and grow and become the leader and eventually the brother and son that God wanted him to be. It's hard to tell somebody what's wrong, but it's really easy for them to see it sometimes through their own mistakes. Would Joseph have known he was a psychopath without this? Would he have been able to endure all that time in Egypt? Would he have allowed God to work on him? The other thing is rarely does anyone really know that God loves them simply by the words that we read, but most often it's by how he shows us that he loves us. And God's working a testimony in Joseph's life where he's gonna be able to point back to all these moments in his life and say, what the enemy intended for evil, God has worked for good. The real redeeming work that God wants to do, oftentimes in the darkness and in the silence, is gonna have a much longer lasting effect. There's all kinds of circumstantial things that God can intervene in. I think of the uh, paralytic who's, lower down into the room that Jesus is preaching in. And Jesus doesn't heal him of his paralysis. He forgives him of his sins. And everybody's just like, what? And Jesus is sending a clear message that I'm a king who sits on a throne who wants to do far greater things than cure some circumstances. Those things would be easy for me, but if you will trust me and obey me and know that I'm a good, loving savior who wants good things for you, I'm a king who's conquered evil. One day, everything will be made right. One day, these broken, fractured relationships that you've experienced will be all better, all good. The beating, the pit, the loneliness, all the despair that you experienced. Jesus says, I actually experienced all the same thing. I went to a pit. I had people who didn't believe in me. I had people who made fun of me. I I cried out and nobody answered. I went to a cross for you. I died for you. So that when you have these circumstantial things in your life, you can know that you actually have a real, true loving God who has experienced the hurt of this world. And you can trust me that I'm gonna do some redeeming work on your heart, which is far greater for eternity than the circumstances that you find yourself in right now. Amen? What was cool about the dream I had is that a couple of years ago, a lot of my peers that I was with that were principals and stuff at that time, you know, three or four years ago, there was a lot of craziness happening in public education masks and vaccines and bathrooms. And and some of them reached out and they're like, man, we're really bridled where we're at. There's things I can't say. There's things I can't do. And it took 10 or 12 years to really see me, for me to see the fulfillment of that vision that God gave me. Like at first it was like, cool. Yeah, I'm going to follow and trust God. But I have a feeling that as I continue through life, I'm going to be super thankful for him paving the way for me to have that freedom of opening that door and saying, man, if you're gonna follow me, like, let's go, let's do this. We know Romans 8.38, Jesus is a conqueror. And so 
I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you've been through. Man, some of the, some of the family drama that went in, into this situation, you're like, man, that was my life. I lived that. There are a multitude of ministry opportunities here that I would love for you to get involved in. There's pastors, the women, there's Titus too. There's grief loss if you've lost a kid. There's widow's ministry. There's a thriving, amazing singles ministry. If you're somebody who's um, been in a situation where, man, the spouse was not good, the situation was bad, or maybe you weren't and things dissolved. There is a thriving singles ministry here that you can be a part of. There's an endless opportunity here at Edgewater to get plugged in, to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, to experience that thriving life that he has for you. Father God, I thank you for sending your son, Jesus. I'm personally humbled, Lord. My sins didn't look like Jacob's or Joseph's, but they needed forgiven anyway. I thank you for coming and doing that. I thank you for the ocean of grace you allow me to swim in with an amazing godly wife and kids, these gifts that I don't deserve, being saved and redeemed was amazing. And then you bless me undeservedly. I thank you for this body of believers. Pray that each one here would know that they are loved, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how silent you might seem in their lives. I pray that they know that they are loved. And if they would let you, there's a work you could do in their hearts so that you can be glorified in their lives. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for letting me share tonight. God bless you guys.